Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick anything from any time in their life, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they would like to get rid of, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the Scottish actor, comedian and writer Sanjeev Kohli, who is best known for his performances in the BBC sitcom Still Game, the Radio 4 sitcom Fags, Mags and Bags, and the BBC Scotland soap opera River City. He also hosts his own talk show, Sanjeev Kohli's Big Talk. Sanjeev was actually born in London, but he's an honorary Scot, having moved there with his parents when he was three years old. It was probably a good idea. I mean, it would have been difficult if he'd moved there on his own. He initially studied medicine at Glasgow University before switching courses to study mathematics, gaining a first-class degree and subsequently studying for a PhD. Sanjeev was in Meet the Magoons, co-written by his brother, Hardeep, Fresh Meat, Rabsy Nesbitt, The IT Crowd, Cold Feet, the films Stan and Ollie, Dark Sense, Shooting Clarks and Lost at Christmas. And he also appeared as Synthesizer Patel in the comedy series Look Around You with Peter Sarovinovich and Olivia Coleman. And me, actually. He's written for Goodness Gracious Me, The Big Breakfast, My Life as a Puppet and other shows. And he's performed his own show at the Edinburgh Festival. So let's hear what the delightful Sanjeev Kohli would like to preserve in his time capsule. All right, well, let's start with item number one. Okay, well, let me preface it first of all by saying that, uh, you know, obviously thinking about doing this, you have to get very analytical. And um, the things that jumped out to me were television comedy. I mean, as much as I love music and film, I don't read as much as I should. Uh, I love my food. 
love my smells. But the <laughs> things that jumped out have all been television comedy. And even then, it was like trying to pick my favourite child. Uh, I mean, I do have a favourite child. I just haven't told him, her. <laughs> Damn, what a good boy. Uh, yeah, but it's um, it has all been television comedy. And I think just ever since I was, I can remember since I was five, I've just sat in front of that goggle box and just absolutely absorbed any comedy or music that was on. And obviously, you know, back in the day, there were only three channels. Mm. I was just of the generation that had the three channels. So BBC Two had started by then. Channel Four kicked off in 82. And any telecomedy, be it, you know, from Wokum Wise onwards, really, was just lapped up. The good stuff and the bad stuff. But it's, it's always something I'll associate with, you know, growing up. And, and um, so that's why I've probably ended up being quite narrow in my choices in terms of genre. But quite wide in, in the scope. So the first one I've gone for is what I regard to be the finest hour of stand-up I've ever seen, and it's an audience with Billy Connolly. Uh, so, yeah. So this is the one, I mean, I, I don't know oh, if outside... Sorry. Oh, look at that. Some, that's my son who knows I'm recording. Huh. I'm going I'm to actually <laughs> talk to him and say, so you know I'm talking to Sanjeev at the moment, don't you, John? Sorry, I thought you said the self's name. Okay, see you later. Bye. Bye. There was a real warmth from that conversation, which I'll take to my grave. <laughs> <laughs> the deep love between us. You should keep that in. I might do. Um, it's, it's really funny that the conversation I have with my daughter is, where the fuck's my charger? That's, and that's the end <laughs> of the conversation. So my first choice is what I regard to be the finest. Is it an hour? I think it is an hour uh, of mm. stand-up that I've, I've ever encountered, and that's an audience with Billy Connolly. I mean, I'm sure everyone is aware of this. Um, it's something that everyone I know, certainly in Scotland, it's almost like a passport. If you can't quote an audience with Billy Connolly from start to finish, you're not getting in. I mean, it's <laughs> it's in our, it's in our DNA, and and it's it's basically one of my heroes, and I think one of the greatest raconteurs that the, the world has ever spawned. Just absolutely on top of his game. So I think it was '86, possibly '87, mm. uh, and he basically had. I mean, the four months of an audience with everyone knows. I think was it's it's a, it's an audience of stars and the great and the good and someone talking to them. So it's like he said himself, every time he looked up, he's seeing a hero. There's a Dennis Law, there's Jimmy Tarbuck's there, uh, Angela Rippon, Barbara Dixon, Robbie Coltrane, they're all there. But it is a lesson in fame, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Because you also go, there's also Wincy Willis. There's also Wincy Willis, who yeah. gets name-checked. Yeah. He gets blessed and name-checked. Uh, I'm sure she's doing very well, Michael. I'm sure she's, you know, selling <laughs> shoes online or something. But she can always point back to the fact that Billy Collin knew who she was. And I'd love to think that Billy Collin knew who I was. Maybe he does. I mean... Where I'm sitting right now, um, he grew up 10 minutes from here. And he's very much, I mean, it's a strange thing. Glasgow produced Billy, and, and there's lots of Glasgow in Billy. But one of the big, I think, negative points about Glasgow is we have this syndrome here, which is a Kenya dad syndrome, which is I know who your father is. Don't get any ideas above your station. Mm -hmm. And the number of times idiots I've heard talking about Billy Connolly said, I Billy Connolly get lucky. He wasn't even the funniest guy on the shipyards. He got lucky. Yeah, he got lucky. He went to Australia and had them in the palm of his hand because he was lucky. Yeah. And think of Billy Connolly was, he, he never, he, you know, when he used to tell jokes, he said, look, this isn't my joke. Someone told me this joke. And he always used to give props to funny Glasgow people that, you know, helped deform him. But in terms of actually just storytelling and observational comedy, there's nobody finer. And this hour, there's nothing finer. The stuff he comes up with is... Astonishing, and just the, the, the absolute brio and confidence he has prowling that stage like a panther. Mm. And you have to understand as well that when I was growing up, there was a Billy Connolly album in the house. Now, I don't know how I got there, right? Because I'm the youngest of three boys. My mum and dad are Punjabi Sikh, okay? So 
most of the stuff in the house was like Sikh devotional songs, Bollywood soundtracks, and then there's a Billy Connolly double album. <laughs> it might even be Billy Connolly by Shabama, I can't remember. I remember seeing this wild, feral kind of Tasmanian devil creature on this double-fold album thinking, what is that? And then you find out he's from Glasgow, and then I saw the first Parkinson that he did where he told the joke about the parking the bike up someone's bum. <laughs> and just remember being faintly embarrassed that someone so Glasgow was on national television. Oh, that's right. He did the line to Angie Dickinson. He said he was talking about supporting Elton John in the States, and he yeah. said he was made to feel as welcome as a fart in a spacesuit. Okay. So he did that line. <laughs> and Angie Dickinson, who was a global star of policewoman at the time, nearly defecating a kidney, laughing. <laughs> and I remember thinking, someone that looks like that and sounds like that, sounds like people I know, can make someone from America, a global star from America, laugh. It was a bit of a moment, I think. Probably, you know, retrospectively, I think there's a bit of a moment that someone could do that and not ever really dilute what he's talking about. Like he talks about in this, um, in the audience of Billy Connolly, he talks about growing up in a Glasgow close and he's having to explain the terminology as he goes. Yeah. And you look up and you see all these global stars hee-hawing, laughing, and you think, my God, you, you can't just tell your own truth and it can be funny if you if you believe in it enough. Mm. And he had that belief, which was which is brilliant. And there are those other shows that he did, like the ones that Whoopi Goldberg arranged oh, for him. Oh, wow. Yeah. You can see them online where he is basically talking to the good and the great of Hollywood, and they're all sitting there. Many yeah. of them have never heard of him, and many of them are struggling with the accent. You can tell they are. Yeah. But just the whole personality overwhelming them. This audience roaring with laughter. And the amazing physical comedy. I mm. mean, it's, it's not. I'm not the first to mention it, but if you watch... I mean, we fell down a bit of a Billy Connolly hole, uh, YouTube hole, me and my wife and my daughter, because we just watched Gregory's Girl, uh. which, by the way, I wish I could put in the capsule, but you haven't made it big enough, Mike. Um, <laughs> a brilliant movie. And, and Chick Murray's in that, right? And Ruby, my daughter, killed herself laughing at the three lines that Chick Murray had and said, well, you know that Chick Murray's a genius. And we showed her Chick Murray clips. And then, because Billy Connolly was a big advocate Chick Murray, we fell back into Billy Connolly's thing. He does that whole routine, I don't know if you're aware of it, of the uh, the, the wildebeest and the Serengeti plane. Yes, I and, do. <laughs> and it's about lions called Agnes and Betty. Yeah. And it's just it's just the physicality of it is outstanding. And when you in an audience with Billy Connolly, I mean I, I had the pleasure of watching it with my kids, but then fearfully like this, they please like this. Because if you don't like this, I don't know if we could be a family anymore. <laughs> but my eight-year-old boy, he was laughing. You know, because it's, it's, it, there's levels, and he was laughing a lot on the physical stuff. And there's a very simple mind that he does of a budgie being put in a, in a bag, and he just does this thing with his shoulders. Yeah. And my wee boy Vinny was killing himself. And then the whole thing about the incontinence pants, that whole mime is up there with anything that Lauren Hardy or Jacques Tati or anyone has done in terms of physicalization. It's just genius well great comics do do that you don't really notice it eddie Izzard is extraordinarily good at setting the scene and then being oh there. totally but eddie Izzard's another hero of mine again no space for a mic but he um he's much more subtle about his visualization I mean, he famously started as a mind didn't he in covent garden mm. and i think he must have taken it right down when he does a stand-up but it's just you just see the little things even things like height difference when you're having a dialogue when he does james mason talking to he just does this little thing with his head and, uh, yeah, it's, it's all very subtle when he does it. Even Billy Connolly, sometimes not so subtle, sometimes very subtle, actually, mm. when, when he does these, these wee mimes and these just little, just little things he does with his legs and his, he's very bendy and he's very... Um, I mean, that, that's the tragedy, I guess, of, of, of the Parkinson's. He said himself, he says, I like to move about a stage, I like to prowl, and I can't do that anymore. No. He's still incredibly funny verbally, of course he is, but you do lose that dimension, sadly. I remember seeing an interview with Pamela Stevenson where she talked about his 
development as a stand-up and how when she first met him, he would go on with a sort of plan of what he was going to say. But very soon after that, he just abandoned that completely and would walk onto stage and start talking. Amazing. Not a thing written down. No. And he does that great parenthetical thing where he'll come back to, what was I talking about? That's right, trousers. And like <laughs> the audience have, have laughed themselves into amnesia, but he's, he's thankfully remembered the thread and remembers to pick up. That's the sign of an incredibly advanced brain, the fact that you can keep all those threads together and remember to go back to them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there must be a moment where you actually, you know, where you see the, the mouse turning the wheel, he's actually forgotten what to say next, but I've not seen it. No. So it's just this astonishing, astonishing um, uh, gift the man has. There's a fantastic history of great comics coming out of Scotland, but actually not that many in comparison to the number of people who stay in Scotland. Yeah, there's very few that have escaped. I mean, Chick Murray had done it. And uh, again, that was lovely because he didn't really dilute what he was saying. I mean, he didn't have like the, the broadest, he didn't have the most, you know, impenetrable accent as such. But, you know, he'd go on there with his Tam O'Shanter. Yeah, and was unapologetically Scottish, and again that was very gratifying because he was ahead of his time. I mean, he was doing stuff that was really quite surreal and actually, you know, almost like situationist comedy. But because he dressed it up as this kind of song and dance man with the blazer and the, and the tartan tammy, it, he, he kind of it was like a Trojan horse. If you were to look at a transcript of what Chick Murray did, I mean, it would work now. It'd work in thirty years' time. It's still. I'm a big fan of Stephen Wright. You know the really droll American. Mm-hmm. Guy did, did the fantastic one-liners. And I thought he was the first guy to do that line about it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Oh, it's not him. Chick Murray had said it. No. Chick Murray had said it, yeah, yeah. I, I'm assuming he was the first, I don't know, but Chick Murray said it a full 20 years before Stephen Wright had, so that shows how ahead of his time he was. I mean, I suppose there have always been people who have done that sort of comedy. It's just how large their audience is. Yeah, yeah. And also, obviously, because things aren't televised, I mean, there could have been someone doing this stuff in 1920, and they just wouldn't have had the platform. Yeah. You know, they, made, they made 12 people hee-haw laughing in Leicester Square, but then no one else found out about it. It'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it, to follow the genealogy of a joke going back. Yeah. They pop up, they rise, and then you hear them everywhere. Yeah. Then they disappear again. And then somebody will tell it, and it starts going around. You go, oh, well, I remember that when I was at school. Yeah. So, for example, my dad told a joke about a person called Donald Pierce, or Donald Pierce, I think, maybe, who was a famous singer from his youth. And it's the joke that then became the Elvis Presley joke about the person being mistaken for Elvis Presley. Do you know that joke? No. He goes on the plane. He says, oh, Mr. Presley, please, you're, yeah. please, your normal seat. And he says, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm John Smith. And he goes, no, 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 this way. He comes, and he says, all right, then. He says, champagne, Mr. Presley? He says, well, I'm not actually. And he goes, yes, of course, we, you don't want to be recognised, but uh, we all know who you are, sir. And then he flies to America, and there's a car waiting for him. He says, we'll take you to your normal hotel, Mr. Presley. He says, I'm not actually. Oh, never mind. And he goes through, and he, they go, Mr. Presley, welcome back. Welcome back to the Sands. Uh, your normal suite is waiting for you, sir. And he says, uh, look, I'm really not. And he's very good, very good. The English accent, very good, sir. <laughs> and, he, and gets in the lift, Mr. Presley, we're taking to uh, floor floor 37, normal room, sir. And then he bursts into the room and there's a beautiful woman lying on the bed. And she goes, Elvis, darling. And he goes, well, it's the one for the money. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I heard that one. (laughs) No, that'll come back and it'll be somebody. Someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's really dangerous to analyse jokes because um, I don't know if it's a thing so much in England or Scotland, but at Halloween... Like, I mean, do you guys go out, like, 
guising, we call it here, trick-or-treating. Uh, yeah, um, we do. I always think of it as being an American thing. But do they do it more in Scotland than they do here? Well, they do, and, and they, you, you have to have a joke or a song. You have to have a turn, otherwise ah, you won't get your sweets. That's the trick, is it? That's the thing. So um, my boy was, I think this was a few Halloweens ago. He's 14 now, must have been about seven. He was going out, and I said, so, Vinny, what's your joke? He said, what do you mean? I think he was expecting expecting an iPad for nothing. I said, no, (laughs) you have to tell a joke. And he said, okay, I'll tell this joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because he was a Mr. Pooh head, okay? (laughs) And I said, okay, Vinny, I I know why you think that's a joke. Why did the dare? Because the dare, but it's not actually a joke. He said, why not? I said, okay, right. I'm thinking, why isn't that a joke? I said, okay, right. I'll tell you a joke, and then I'll explain why it's a joke. He said, fine. Mm. So I'm thinking, what joke I tell a seven-year-old? I said, okay, right. What about this one? Why didn't the skeleton go to the party? Because he had no body to go with. And he said, why is that a joke? I said, well, because no body means two things. So it means the skeleton has no body, and it also means no one. It's got two meanings. That's a joke. And then he said, why is that funny? <laughs> and I was stumped. Because why is a pun funny? Why is wordplay funny? Why, do we, why does a body do that thing? I said to him, just do the poo head joke. And I, I told that story. <laughs> I told that story to a couple of comedy writers. And they said, well, do you know why? Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Do you know why that's a joke? I said, actually, no. No. What's funny about it? And he said, it goes back to sort of Victorian Dickensian times when everyone believed in God. And to get to the other side also meant to go to heaven. So why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side had two meanings? Ah, of course. But then I don't know why it's a chicken, Mike. That baffles me. Why chicken? And honestly, let's not go down the road of where the chickens go to heaven. Do chickens go to Are there 57 chickens waiting for them? Do animals? Do animals go to heaven? I'd be ridiculous. I mean, let's think about it. The place is going to be rammed. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about farmyard animals that are quite sizable. What about insects? There's 50 million of those fuckers. They can't all have a place in heaven, can they? Amoebas, paramecia? And this, Mike, is why we can't analyse jokes. <laughs> oh, did you go to heaven? It'll be like Scotland in summer. <laughs> that ain't heaven. <laughs> I'm now going to ruin these kids' lives by every time saying, well, yeah, do your trick then. Yeah, make them. Yeah. Make them tell a joke. And also you'll get a brilliant range of jokes. And it's, <laughs> it was, like you're talking about jokes kind of getting arms and legs. So every Halloween there'll be a joke that's told four times. It's clearly the joke du jour. Mm. But then you'll get an eight-year-old telling you a joke. Oh, my God, it reminds me of a time. How are we for language on this? Fine. Are we? Okay, right. Oh, just because it's illustrative. My niece, when she was 10, and she, I, I pray to God she didn't tell this joke at Halloween going around strangers' doors, right? But she said to me, oh, uncle, I've got a great joke for you. I said, oh, go on, jump in, tell me the joke. And she's quite innocent looking. In my mind's eye, she had pigtails. And uh, she said, there are three tampons walking along the road. Which one crosses the road to speak to you? I'm already thinking, okay, we're taking a left turn here. I said, I don't know, John Preet. And she said, none of them, they're all stuck-up cunts. <laughs> I was honestly, my jaw was in China. It is falling through so hard off from my face. It was unbelievable. I love the innocence of that, that they don't realize quite how rude they're being. That's what I think is the situation. Oh, God. Yeah. My friend Angus, one of his sons was in the car with his mate from school and he was driving them to school. And he said, um, Peter's in trouble. He said a rude word to the teacher. And his friend said, What did he say? He said, I can't say it's too rude. It's far too rude. He said, no, go on, say it. So he said, well, he called her an effing cunt. (laughs) (laughs) 
an interesting sidebar to that is, is that, and this goes back to actually kind of Glasgow and Billy Connolly and stuff, is that the sea bomb is a compliment in Glasgow. Do, do, are you aware of this, Mike? Uh, not really, no, although uh, people have obviously been complimenting me a lot when I've been in Glasgow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it comes from that low self-esteem thing and that I know your dad thing. So the idea is, is that, I'd say, oh, I know that Mike Fenn Stevens, he's a funny cunt. So the idea is, yeah, I think he's funny, but I'm going to undercut him anyway. Uh. So, you know, you could be a good cunt or a funny cunt. And uh, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was I got asked years ago, uh, Charles Kennedy, when he was still alive, uh, one of the few MPs that I would happily have in my house, mm. a lot of respect for him and uh, a great guy. He got into telepresenting after he retired from politics. So I got a call from a production company saying, look, um, there's this uh, documentary that's getting made and Charles Kennedy's fronting it. And it's about the Scottish psyche. It's called A Chip on Both Shoulders, which is pretty <laughs> funny. And, and he, he wondered if he might talk to you, because obviously you're in the world of comedy and Scotland's known for funny people, but also, you know, you've got a slightly outside the perspective on it. I said, mate, you had me, Charles Kennedy. I love the guy. Mm. So long story short, we were walking along the Clyde, the Broomy Law, which is by the Clyde in town. So we've got a clip bike, so we're just kind of having an informal kind of walk and talk uh, uh, interview. And every time the director said action, there were these two guys in tracksuits, right? And one was really skinny like a lighthouse and I was really squat like a bulldog and they just started shouting random abuse like hey, yeah yeah hoagie. cut they'd shut up action hey, yeah for you <laughs> cut action this went on five six times at one point Charles said to me are they shouting at you or me I said it could be both or neither I don't know what they're saying <laughs> it's like being heckled by a fax machine I don't know what's going on here so eventually we got like a usable take and we start unclipping our mics, and we're losing sun by this point. And then over stoke the two guys, right? They, oh, here we go. What have they got to say for themselves? And the wee squat one says to me, and I'm, I'm not even exaggerating for comic effect, he says to me, I'm very sorry for my colleague's vulgar vocabulary. <laughs> he thought that cunt was Jack McConnell. So, um, and to, to me, that's that's Glasgow in a nutshell. And it kind of, you know, it, it, I see it resonating with what Billy does sometimes. He, I mean, he talks about how Glasgow folk give him a hard time for leaving Glasgow. Why would you not leave Glasgow? The weather's shit here. <laughs> you can be the richest crisis. You're not going to bring the sun any closer to Glasgow. You could commission the largest magnet in the world. It ain't going to happen. And <laughs> for me, he's never stopped being Scottish. He's Scottish wherever he goes. Yeah. So I have no issue with it. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd much rather he was like, a, as Eddie as I might describe it, an executive Scot, like a, you know, a freelance executive Scot, you know, being <laughs> Scottish in other locations so that we don't have to. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Well, he's certainly the best advert you could possibly have for Scotland, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, I just want to know if those chips on both shoulders came with a deep fat fried Mars bar. <laughs> Which I've yet to try. <laughs> Me too. The rumour was, was that it was one chippy that was doing it and there were six camera crews that, you know what I mean? It was it kind of, you know, it wasn't a real thing, but it's become a real thing since then. Mm. Didn't Nigella do a deep fried bounty bar? In one of her books. So it's it's crossed all the stratas. Only so she could slowly, slowly eat it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, Sanjeev, that's your first item. That's Billy Connolly and his uh, audience with yeah. Wincy Willis, yes. Lovely. All right. <laughs> so let's have item number two. Okay, item number two. I'm going to go for the comedy that I think really, really opened my eyes. Not that I knew it at the time, but when I look back retrospectively, it did is The Young Ones. And I guess it was 82, 83 when it came out, so I was 12, 13. And I even remember seeing the trailer for it, and it was the four of them round the table in the kitchen saying, watch it, it's really good. 
And I just remember thinking, what is that? That looks really, it looks like a cartoon. Who are these people? And, you know, make a point of taping that. I've still got the VHS tapes in my mum's attic, actually. And you couldn't not tape the young ones because it was absolute appointment television. And, oh, my God, what? It was like nothing I'd ever seen. Because I actually discovered the Pythons after the young ones. And I wasn't aware of the goons at that age. So this, for me, was the first anarchic comedy I'd seen. And it just went everywhere. It was the energy that got me, you know. Um, especially, I have to say, I know Rick Mail gets all the credit, but not all the credit, but what an absolute blinding performance from that man oh my god yeah everything he does i mean i could have put kevin turvey in in the time capsule because <laughs> i love that character as well but yeah it was just the fact that it had like bands like motorhead as well in the mix and amazulu and uh, uh you know it was, it, was a, it was a full half hour of comedy but it was it, it just seemed to be speaking to me and not to my mum and dad yeah and also being at that age you kind of want your own thing anyway but especially if you grow up in a house of first generation immigrants who really aren't going to get what you're watching so I, I'd never want my mum and dad to see me watching The Young Ones because how to explain that to my mum and dad? And they were never going to be like the mum and dad that say, oh, this isn't as funny as, you know, Abba Costello because they didn't even have that frame of reference, you know? There was there was nothing. So I just I, I just prayed to God. I mean, bear, bear in mind as well that I'm listening to my big brother's Deep Purple and Black Sabbath collection as well. And again, they had no reference for that. I mean, if you grow up in a white household, mm. generally speaking, they'll have their record collection and things they find funny. And you can maybe plunder that. So they might have the Rolling Stones or MC5 or, you know, the Beatles or, or whatever, or Jim Reeves. But in our house, it was seat devotional songs, Bollywood soundtracks. There was no comedy, apart from this Billy Connolly album that showed up from nowhere. So you absolutely, in, in a way, it kind of frees you up because you don't have a frame of reference. So when something like The Young Ones rocks up, you think, having that, that's mine, it's for me. And even though I was probably four or five years too young to get all the references, I lapped it up. I mean, I became known as The Young Ones bore at school. <laughs> I'd be running about, did you see the young ones last night? No, I didn't. Did you see the young ones? Do you remember that thing you did? Do you remember the university challenge? And uh, I think my favorite sequence is the university challenge episode where you see uh, Neil and Rick arguing about, you know, like crop rotation in the 14th century. That just even, <laughs> just even verbally, it's beautiful because it's got about three false endings. It is like climbing Everest. It's like, oh, there's another ending. Oh, there's another ending. And it's the way that they interact. It's like ballet. It's the, the timing is bang on. It's, Again, it's something that I watched with my kids. Just I really, really hoped it would stand up. And to me, it absolutely does stand up because you can't replicate that kind of energy. I mean, there's things they did you couldn't do now, like the bed falling through. I'm not a virgin. When the bed falls through <laughs> into the set, that, that's not going to pass muster now in terms of health and safety. There's no way they could do that. So it felt like a live-action cartoon. So it spoke to me as a child. But then as an adult, it speaks to you as well because, you know, it did get political. Of course it did. And it was very much about Thatcher's Britain, but done, you know, satirically. Yeah. But it was very redolent of a time. And even when you just look at the flat, it's so depressing. It is really depressing. <laughs> and it felt like, you know, uh, when they have that siege episode, it's like, oh, God, that's what it was like in 1983. Everything was so depressing. There's no money, no one had anything. I'd just been a student when that came out. So I absolutely recognised the filth and squalor. Yeah. No doubt about it. We lived in appalling places. But in as much as those characters were obviously, you know, Heightened. I mean, did you recognise? Absolutely recognise yeah. it, yeah. Recognise the sort of a, the landlord who'd come round and didn't give a toss. And I remember when we broke up a settee to burn it, we found under it all the plates and knives that we'd put under there, covered <laughs> in sort of furry growth, <laughs> you know. But I do have a story which uh, I'm not 
even sure I should ever tell anyone, but my wife, when we first started going out together and she moved in with me when we were students, she said to me, when did you last wash these sheets? And I said, do you wash sheets? (laughs) Oh, my God. I know. Oh, well, I I, I could possibly top that story. And it didn't happen to me, but it was my brother-in-law told me the story. Him and his two mates were sharing a student flat. And uh, someone had basically done a massive poo that wasn't flushing away, was not going anywhere. I'm sorry, Mike. I know, I know you want to. I, 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 you probably cut this out, but it's he, he'd done a huge, huge, like a proper monster, a beast of a poo, and it wasn't flushing away. And uh, they got really angry at the guy and said, "That better be gone by tonight. That's your responsibility. Get rid of it." <laughs> so they come back and they said, "Have you dealt with that?" He said, "Yeah, I've dealt with it." So they ordered Chinese and they were eating away. I said, so what do you do? He says, in the end, I had to chop up with a fork and flush it away. <laughs> and Steve went like this. Was it one of these forks? He said, well, I washed it. <laughs> oh, no. I know, I know. Oh, God. I was working with Rick and Aid, and I knew Lisa Mayer writing for that show. Yeah. And they came to my house one weekend in the midst of the recordings of those things. And Rick said to me, you should be in the next series, Mike. Come and do it. And I went, yeah, all right, I don't mind. I was just trying to not look too keen. He took it as, oh, he doesn't really want to be in it. Oh. See, I, I've stopped doing that now. I just absolutely, I become, I fangirl. There's no dignity in it, no. but there's also no ambiguity in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy to do that, isn't it? I mean... It's true, isn't it, that your, your IQ does drop about 15 points when you're in the presence of someone that you rate. I mean, I remember um, meeting Peter Capaldi, not meeting him. I um, was in the Apple shop in Glasgow, mm. uh, just get my phone fixed, and there he was. I mean, I've, I've got a vague man crush on him anyway. I think he's amazing. But he was wearing this kind of powder blue coat, and he looked like he was uplit and floating. And this was, oh, my God, there's Peter Capaldi. Oh, my God, there's Peter Capaldi. Leave him alone. Because the thing is, I'm at a level of fame where... There's a lot more people more famous than me than less famous than me. But I understand when you get someone come up to you and the conversation just like dries up, but they won't go away. I understand that from both ends. So my strategy has always been is that if you're going to do this, you see a bit and you fuck off at speed, give yourself an exit because you don't want to be hanging about like an egg. (laughs) So I just went up to him and I said, I'm very sorry, Mr. Capaldi. You don't know who I am. I just want to say, I think the thick of it is the best thing on television and you're the best thing in it. I'll leave you to your day. And as I span walk away, said, oh, I know who you are. I've been chatting to Daniel and Nardine about you. And uh, by the way, congratulations on all the brilliant work. At which point I melted. <laughs> and to this day, I don't know what I said back to him. And I probably just embarrassed him. I don't know what I said to him. No. So we, we've all done it. I did the opposite, though. I overcompensated rather than undercompensated. <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? Because it's, it's having that gauge of where you are. And- I think the moment you take it for granted or the moment you assume somebody will know, that's when you look like an ass. Of course. I did meet Billy Connolly once, but I made no assumptions. And again, I just went like that at him. I talked at him for a minute about his glasses because I knew where he got his glasses from. It was like an optician in, <laughs> in Glasgow. And I knew where he got glasses from. Yeah, because they told me. Yeah, because they made a record of Van they? Yeah, yeah. And he just, he just stood there and he sort of blinked. So that, that, is this going to end anytime soon? <laughs> but I did, make, I did make sure that I left. But the whole time I'm thinking, please know me from that Scottish sitcom that everyone in Scotland knows. Please know me from it. Please say something. He said nothing. So um, I gave him his chance, but uh, he's pissed on his chips. If he wants to be in my sitcom, he's, it's not happening. It's not happening, Michael. I'm telling you right now. Or any of his friends. Whoopi Goldberg, forget it. No, Billy Crystal, get out of town. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, who? 
Well, the young ones was a piece of genius. There's no doubt about that. Let's put them into your time capsule. All right. So let's move on to item number three. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, but we'll be back very soon. See you in a minute. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Sanjeev Kohli would like to put in his time capsule. It's going to be Vic and Bob. Um, I love all their stuff. I mean, uh, there's one thing I keep returning to, which is when they do Donald and Davy Stott, which is uh, the two Geordie lads that have their own, their own chat show and they wear kilts and they wear wiggle pickers and they wear fake moustaches and they are very funny. And, and it's almost like undiluted Vic and Bob in the sense that even if anything else had breaks, this has no breaks. He just said what the hell they liked. And there's the, the whole bit where they've got, Mr. Guesting, they've got Sting on. They've got Sting on the show. <laughs> oh, God, that's said, brilliant. Mr. Yeah. Guesting, when you get an itchy bottom at night, do you uh, <laughs> stick out the window and let the breeze blow off? Do you be rubber on your wife's chin? Or do you see, just pick at it with your fingers? And Sting uh, loses it. He can't help himself. And then the, whole, the whole way through, Bob is losing it. Vic's losing it, and it's an absolute joy to watch. It's a tour de force, but everything they do. And I had the chance to work with Bob Mortimer. I um, do you remember the character Angelos that Dan Renton Skinner does? Yeah, he used to be like on uh, shooting stars. He took over from <laughs> Matt Lucas. Mm. And, uh, what lies beneath? Eh? And uh, <laughs> brilliant, a brilliant characterization. And um, he was doing an online thing called "What Angelos Did Next." So they were having these auditions, and uh, this is the thing about auditions, and you'll know this. Because where do you live? I live in Tunbridge Wells. Okay, right. So you're what, maybe an hour from London? or Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you get the call for audition, it's not... It's not fly down from Glasgow, no. Exactly. So, yeah. and as I explained to everyone that isn't in the business, you don't get paid to do auditions. You have to fund that yourself, right? So when someone says to you, it's an online thing, you're thinking, oh, great. Okay, is this going to be worth easy jet flights? Because there's, there's no money in online. It's Bob Mortimer, right? When's it? When's it happening? What's, what, when? <laughs> Tell me and I'll be there. It's this thing that Dan Renton Skin is doing, and Bob's directing it. So you'll be meeting Dan Renton Skinner, Bob Mortimer, and the, and the producer. So I went down for this audition, and I thought, well, if nothing else, I'll get to meet Bob Mortimer. So the thing that I was auditioning for was what Angelos did next, and he had this kind of coterie of people, and one of them was described as his squash partner and life guru, Mr. Gupta. So I thought, I can do that. So I went down, and I remember I, I just kind of just played it really angry, and I made <laughs> all of them, including Bob Mortimer, laugh. I just remember thinking, if I've done nothing else in my life, 
I made Bob Mortimer laugh. So anyway, uh, we did this audition in this church, and it was a weird setup because the actual audition was in one of the rooms. It's quite labyrinthine. I was, I was in one of the rooms upstairs, and I had to because it was I think late evening. The main entrance was shot. I had to walk through the actual churchy bit to get back out. And as I'm walking out, I hear doof, 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 someone running, and it's Dan Renton Skinner. And he came to the balcony bit like it was the graduate <laughs> and said, I didn't want you to go back to Glasgow thinking you hadn't got the job. You've got the job. And that's never <gasps> happened before or since. Yeah, that's fantastic. It was a lovely, lovely job. Uh, and uh, Dan was brilliant. And it was such fun. And Bob, like I say, was directing it. And, mm. you know, we're, we're at Pet Productions and I'm thinking, I'm, this is this is Bob's production office. There's Bob sitting there. We're, I'm talking to Bob at Fish and Chips. <laughs> and at one point I had this I had this kind of this jacket and it was all very low budget. And, and he was playing the director of the thing that we were doing. So he said, whose jacket is this? I said, it's mine. He said, do you mind if I put it on while we film? I said, yeah, you can wear my jacket, Bob Bottomer. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was it was lovely. But uh, no, I've, um, ever since, I mean, I guess like everyone, we were, I was introduced to Vic and Bob through um, Big Night Out. And again, what the hell is this? It's variety, but it's so out there. And it's proper variety. I mean, even if they played it straight, it'd be entertaining. Yeah. But, you know, the fact is later on, we'll be meeting a lazy priest with an eye for the ladies. Why is that funny? But it bloody is. And um, every incarnation they've done from Big Night Out to Smell Of to Bang Bang, it just comes from a place where I don't think anyone else can inhabit, you know? No. And I love the fact with Bob that his brilliant ability with words, oh. his amazing comedy, has found an outlet in uh, Would I Lie to You? And then yeah. the just beautiful him and Paul Whitehouse going fishing together. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Such a gorgeous programme. I get the impression he's probably quite private. It's, it's weird that you get, you know, that both of them actually probably want to put a wall up. Yeah. But you actually get to, to, to sit with them on, on, on a collapsible chair and fish with them. I mean, I think almost not only private, but shy. Yeah. It's a strange one. I, I got into the business through radio presenting. So I'm very comfortable being myself, which is why I can do things like this. Whereas other people, they're much happier being other people and they're very good at it. And they just don't feel they can be themselves. But I get the impression with Bob that there's a, there's a shyness there. But when I think of reality television and the way it's gone, the things that I like are Gogglebox and the Bake Off. Because it is about people being nice to each other. I mean, it's a very basic thing. I can't be arsed with people setting up false enmities and false oppositions and yeah. piss off with that. I just, you know, I want to see talented people just being nice. When you watch something like this, Lefty Bake Off, it's just it's such a joy. It's like the gone fishing thing as well. I'm not trying to set up like, you know, oh, and we're going to put Bob in this situation and Paul has to blah, blah, blah. No, just, I just want to see them. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you on this, definitely. It's just, there's no, there's no need for any of that. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Let's put Reeves and Mortimer. Let's put them into the time capsule. I'm delighted to have them in there. Okay, we've got two left. Okay, right. I was really swithering because I really wanted to put in the Mokum Wise, Andre Previn, because <laughs> I could watch that on a loop till I die. I really, really could. It's an utter joy from start to finish. But I have plumped for... You just need to get a bigger time capsule. Honestly, I keep saying this, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go for Alan Partridge. I think it's my favourite sitcom of all time. To the extent that it's almost my default setting. I, you know, I'll just go into Alan Potter's just, you know, for no reason at all with the kids, you know. I'm a zombie. He's having a pop at the undead. I can't help myself. And he's been through so many incarnations now, all the way from On the Hour to the latest thing this time, which I think is genius. Isn't it brilliant that he's grown into the age he always has been? Oh, exactly, exactly, exactly. That's it. Because when you, when you watch Knowing Me Knowing You, you think... How old was Steve Coogan then? Probably like mid-30s. He's, he's mm. not, you know, he's the age he should have been now. Yeah, you're right, he's grown into it. 
So um, Alan Partridge, I mean, apart from anything else, one of my favorite sequences is in the first season, Alan Partridge, when he's annoyed the farmers and they get a farmer on to the radio station. And it's Chris Morris, who is an absolute living hero of mine. And you see two of the biggest brains in the planet just riffing with each other. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, I compare it to, do you remember when John Cleese showed up in The Goodies mm. as a sort of genie? And it's like, oh my God, John Cleese is in The Goodies. Oh my God, Chris Morris and Steve Coogan together. And they are just literally improvising. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> because I've, I've had the chance to meet both of them. Um, I auditioned for Four Lions. Did you? I did, yeah. And the thing was, is that I kind of knew the casting director and he said, look, do you want to meet Chris Morris? I said, yeah, I want to meet Chris Morris. And he says, you see people for this thing. And then it was like a bit cat and mouse because there'd be an audition, then it'd go away, then it'd come back and go away. But eventually I was in a room with Chris Morris for 45 minutes and what an utter gentleman. And the whole time I was like, you know, we talked about Rick Mill before when Rick meets his lecture. Oh my God, you've got the same trousers as me. That was kind of me in my head, trying not to fangirl. But generally thinking, I've got those chords. Oh, my God, I've got the same chords as Chris Morris. And then we did the audition, and I don't remember a huge amount about it. I think I kind of sort of blurred it a wee bit out of my head. But I just remember at the end, so I'd flown from Glasgow for the audition, and he said, oh, have you got far to go? I said, yeah, I'm just I'm flying back to Glasgow. And this was maybe three months after the terrorist attack in Glasgow, <laughs> our one and only terrorist attack. Well, I say that. There's terrorist attacks every Saturday night. Yeah. But the one and only Islamic terrorist attack in Glasgow when they tried to drive a car at Glasgow Airport. And he, I think he, he obviously was on top of all that stuff. And he said, uh, so is there still security at the airport? And I said, yes. In fact, the only vehicle they let through was a Febreze lorry to get rid of the burning smell of hair. <laughs> and Chris Morris laughed. And again, I walked away thinking, well, I made Chris Morris laugh. And I, and I, I never got the job, and it was kind of win-win because my wife had said to me, look, I know how much you love Chris Morris, but I don't want you playing a terrorist. That'll come back and bite you in the arse. And I said, but it's Chris Morris, and he's, he's hiring Asians, and I'm Asian. Anyway, I never got it, but it was a brilliant, brilliant film. And um, so, yeah, and then uh, I'm, I worked with, I say worked with, Steve Coogan. It was, uh, I don't know if you've seen Stan and Ollie, the Lauren Hardy film. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful film, and I had a chance to be in one scene, so... Uh, for people that, that don't know the, the plot of the film, it's basically Lauren and Hardy are on their uppers and they're touring the UK and they're, they're playing to like half-filled venues. Part of the reason being that people didn't believe it was them. They thought it was you know some, some tribute vaudeville act. So they come to the Glasgow Empire and I play the manager of the Glasgow Empire. And it's quite funny because the director is a lovely guy, brilliant director called John Baird. He's a fan of Still Game, which is the, the comedy that I'm in. And, and, and that, I think that's why he cast me. And I said to him, look, Far be it for me to talk myself out of a job, because obviously I want to do this. But just to say, I don't think that the manager of the Glasgow Empire in the 50s would have been an Asian guy. He said, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. So uh, I had one day, and we were filming actually in the um, in Wimbledon, the theatre of Wimbledon. And it was a really, really hot day. It was like May, and it was hot. And um, so Steve Coogan's there as Dan Laurel and John C. Riley as Babe Hardy. So I remember saying to myself, right, speak when spoken to, because... It's one of those situations that, you know, I could probably write Steve Coogan's biography, but neither of us needs that. So if you feel like he might be up for conversation, talk to him. If not, just leave it. And so when I was introduced to him, he sort of said hello, but I got the impression that he was maybe knackered or maybe it's not. So do you know what? Leave him. He's, the guy's working, right? Leave him alone. Yeah. But John C. Riley was a bit more effusive. And so he was, like I say, dressed as Oliver Hardy in the fat suit. And it was a hot day. So every time 
cut was sh- shouted, there'd be four like fans on him, two floor fans, two he- handheld fans, you know, apart from anything else, for his comfort, but also for continuity, because, I mean, the sweat must have been horrible. <laughs> so he was just, like, kind of chatting to everyone that was around as kind of like a circle of 20 people, and he was talking about, you know, back in the day in the 20s, there was a baseball player. He was quite a fat guy, you know, and he had a great pitching arm, but uh, he was big. He was a big guy, you know, and, and they, what they used to do between ends, I'm going to say ends, I don't know baseball. Between ends, they, they would pack him in a van full of ice to cool him down because back in those days, it was all about inflammation. You've got to reduce inflammation, inflammation of the organs, inflammation of the, the arteries, the veins, inflammation of the, everything. You've got to reduce inflammation and and medical thinking has come back around to that way of, of reducing inflammation of, of the liver the kidneys the heart it's all about inflammation inflammation fyi okay and then there's a pause and i can't help myself with word plays and puns right and i step into the circle of trust and i say well of course that's what fyi stands for for your inflammation <laughs> and he looks up at me and he says actually it stands for feckless yabs interrupting. And my arse fell through the floor. I said, oh, my God. For what felt like a million years, I was falling down a well. And then he said, probably two seconds later, it's Sanjeev, isn't it? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, great character work. I like what you're doing in this scene. Keep it up. So I think maybe he just quite liked the wordplay. Mm-hmm. But uh, oh my god, I've never, I've never panicked so much. Oh, it was horrible. Oh, I don't know. I have a feeling that was a slap on the wrist. I think it was, you know. And and mm. he was just a nice guy, and he pulled it back. Yeah, rather than just cutting you dead. Exactly, which can happen. Oh, of course it can. Yeah. So I was thankful for the rejoinder afterwards. But yeah, I once auditioned for Partridge. Oh, me and him and Amando spent at least half an hour just talking about the history of comedy. And yeah. Before yeah. we even got down to sort of having a go at the scenes. Well, again, Armando, I mean, I had the pleasure of working with Armando. I knew his name already because he's from Glasgow and he's a few years older than me. But I went to St. Aloysius College, which is like a fee-paying Catholic school. Don't ask me why. Um, And um, (laughs) I would see his name all over the college magazine winning all the prizes. And I was quite studious and academic. And I remember thinking, I want to be that guy. I want to win the physics and the English and the maths. Mm. Uh, And I'd see his name. And then when I saw his name on the credits of things like the Mary Whitehouse experience, I thought, there can't be that many Armando Inucci's in the world. And if he's from Glasgow, it's probably the guy that went to my school. And it was. And I've you know, met him since. And, and you know, he, he was at our school. And um, I got a wee part in Avenue 5, which is a thing he did for HBO. I was playing, again, another hero of mine. I was, I was playing Hugh Laurie's husband. <laughs> because the, the, the idea is, is that people in the future are in throuples. And so he had a wife and a husband back at home. So we had a couple of scenes where we were doing like video conference calls with him. But annoyingly, me and his wife dumped him. So I have no future now in the show. Oh, no. Well, Steve Coogan. Are we putting Steve in or should we just put Alan Partridge? Um, I think probably Alan Partridge because I think it's my favourite sitcom of all time. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll put that in, I think. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. And if you go through the cast list of those people again and again and again, amazing people that have gone on to have extraordinary careers and were spotted incredibly early. Rebecca Front and Doom McKegan. I did a pilot with Armando. Was one of them Shush, by any chance? Shush, yeah. Yeah, was that Rebecca Front, the library one? Yeah. They they made a pilot and didn't pick it up. We made two pilots for it, and they didn't pick it up for the television, no, but we did it on the radio. There you are. Who needs money? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Okay, we will put Alan Partridge into the time capsule. So you've got one final item, and this is one you want to get rid of. 
So this is uh, a bit of paper that I have somewhere. It is a written heckle that I received. <laughs> um, I don't really do stand-up. I do after dinner, but mainly for this reason. But I speak to so many stand-ups and they say, you got a written heckle? I said, yeah, I did, I did. So I'll take you back, let you set the scene. It was back in 1997. So my route into the business that we call show is that um, a friend of mine asked me to audition to present a magazine show at Radio Scotland. And I thought, yeah, all right then, I've got no experience in this. But she said, I, I just remember you from university, I think you'd be good at it. And I found that it was a total natural. <laughs> so I'm presenting this yeah. multicultural magazine show and nobody was listening, which is great because... I could learn the skills. And what, and what I was finding was that because I'd watched loads of comedy, never having performed it or anything, just being a consumer, I was incredibly shy as a kid, very, very shy. Didn't think performing was in me at all. So it was a surprise at all that I was presenting a radio show. But because my default setting was comedy, I would be writing these links mm. purely to make me laugh and the two people in the cubicle, because like I say, nobody was listening. And this kind of got picked up in Radio Scotland, so I ended up sketch writing. So... You know, again, never having written a sketch of my life, but thinking, right, how would Fry and Laurie do this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how would David Renwick do this? And I would just learn the kind of rules of comedy writing. I write a sketch. I know it's too long. I kind of know where the punchline is, and I know that it should be near the end. And anyway, so learned on the job, as it were. And so two, three years after that, I'm thinking, well, I'm now writing comedy, and I'm radio presenting, so surely the next logical step is to write myself a routine that I can perform. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm one of those guys, I mean, if you look at the head of my career, every time my career has taken a turn, it's because someone else has said, I think you'd be good at that. I never have the confidence to do something off my own bat. So I did nothing about it. And then a friend of mine, and this is going back to 97, she had organized a ball. And it was like a, basically a ball for young Asian professionals. It's kind of like a professional meat market. The idea was, <laughs> was that if you just graduated as a pharmacist or an optometrist, you could go to this ball and uh, have a nice dinner and have a DJ and maybe meet the, you know, your future partner. I think that was the idea, right? <laughs> so my good friend was organizing it and she'd sold it out. And she said, look, I've got the DJ, I've got the dinner, it's all sorted, chicken balmoral, it's all sorted. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking maybe we have some comedy. And at that time, I'd been writing for Goodness Gracious Me. And she said, look, you know Sanji Basker, don't you? I said, well, yeah, I mean, we're not best pals, but I do know him. And she said, do you think he might be up for doing a bit of stand-up? I said, well, he's on the telly now, so you might not be in your price bracket, but I could certainly pass on the message. So I did, and then she got back two weeks later and said, you're right, he's too expensive. Would you do it? So I thought, it's a front-handed insult, but I thought, do you know what? <laughs> I, I immediately said yes, because I thought, if I wait to do this myself, I'm, I'm, I'll never do it, because I know what I'm like, I'm a, I'm a complete shitbag. So I'll say yes, and then I'll have to worry about doing it. So I said yes. And then they went about writing a routine. The thing was, this was my audience. It was all late 20s Asian people. So I, I knew that, you know, I could tailor, write mm. a routine for these people. It was fine. So I did that. And uh, a little bit of confidence having done the radio thing, you know, but it's, it's very different to working with an audience right there. But anyway, I thought, oh, I'll go for this. I have to. And so I showed up on the night. And the thing was, I wasn't on any of the posters. And even if I had been, they're not going to know who I am. So they're not really expecting someone to come to talk out of the 10 minutes. But... I got introduced and I went on and to be fair to myself, I mean, I think I probably had them for seven or eight minutes and I was going all right. But the problem was, was that I thought that I was going to be given the signal to wind up. The DJs around the back having a fag waiting for me to wind myself up. <laughs> so long story short, I think in my mind's eye, it was 20 minutes that I was up there. A short story long, I think. Short story long, you're right. I wish it had been short. Like, um <laughs> 
uh, I've lost the room. They're dead to me. They're hermetically sealed from me. I'm up on that stage just talking. And they're just doing, <laughs> they're just doing their own thing. They're, they're crossing the room to speak to their pals who haven't seen in a while. And, and I'm up there like kind of like a nightmare. Like I, I, I'm up here. I have no exit strategy. I, I can't feel like I can just drop the mic and walk off. I, I kind of have to plow on until someone tells me otherwise. And then eventually a waiter comes over with a, like a Bacardi and Coke on a tray. And I said, oh, some support in the audience. Thank you very much. And he said, no, the drinks were someone else. It was a paperweight. It was a note underneath the drink. So I took the note and I opened it and it said, you're boring everybody. Please get off. <laughs> so I said, well, sensing hostility. So I'll take my leave of you. Thank you. I've been Sanjay Kohli. Good night. And I, I just walked off the stage. Uh, I walked past the people that I knew there. I couldn't look them in the eye. I walked straight into, I wasn't drinking. I walked straight into a wee blue Astra. I drove home and I went to bed for two days. So, um, I mean, I, I probably should keep that bit of paper just as a sort of, you know, again, that Glasgow thing, you know, don't get ideas above your station. If you ever find yourself on a podcast talking to the legendary Mike Fender Stevens, just remember <laughs> that note in that drawer of who you are. Um, but no, I want, I think I want to dispatch it. I want to, I want, uh, it's, it's like the opposite of Dumbo's feather. I want to get rid of it. I think it might have weighed me down all these years. Well, I wish I'd spoken to you before I rang Barry Cryer. Oh, wow. He loves stories about people failing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I rang Barry to tell him how well his episode was being received and how many, because I know he wouldn't know. Barry, you won't believe it. A number of people have said, you know, king of comedy and how brilliant you are and how funny you are and how much they love you. And he went, oh, that's great, Mike. Anyway, so there's these two women at a bus stop. (laughs) Literally, that's exactly what he did. Oh, wow. Do you want to hear the joke? Yes, I want to hear it now. (laughs) Okay. Two women sitting at a bus stop, and one of them looks over to the other bus stop over the other side of the road and says, is that the Archbishop of Canterbury, isn't it? The woman said, I don't think so. She says, I think it is. Go and ask him. So she walks over the road and says, excuse me, sorry, are you the Archbishop of Canterbury? And the bloke says, oh, fuck off. So she walks back and sits down with her mate, and the mate said, what did he say? She said, he said, fuck off. She said, God, now we'll never know. So I love I love hearing a joke I've never heard because you think you've heard them all, don't you? Yeah. Somebody told me a joke the other day, which again I thought, why haven't I heard this before? Uh, how do you think the unthinkable with an iceberg? <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful. Short and sweet. I love a short and sweet joke. Yeah. Well, that terrible written heckle, which I think you should frame. Yeah. And forever afterwards, whenever anybody offers you a Bacardi and Coke, you go, no way, no, I've got an aversion to them. Or just vomit right in their face <laughs> as a kind of like a, as a reaction. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll bury it. And it's gone. It's gone from your yes. life. I feel two stone lighter already. <laughs> <laughs> I feel released. <laughs> Sanjeev, I, I really love talking to you. It's been great. Thank you very much, mate. Oh, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sanjeev Kohli. I really enjoyed recording this episode, so if you enjoyed listening to it, then why not check out the other 100-plus episodes available? In fact, if you subscribe to this podcast, you can download or stream all episodes as they become available, and then you can listen to them at your leisure. You'll find us on all major podcast providers. You may also be given the opportunity to write a short review of My Time Capsule. If you're not sure what to write, then follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, where you can message me or tweet me and ask for help. And then I'll send you a fair and completely unbiased review for you to cut and paste in its entirety. You'll have to give the review a title, so I'd suggest um, something like 
Holy shit, this is good. I mean, it's just a suggestion. The theme tune for My Time Capsule was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available to download on Spotify. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to check social media to see if anyone is stupid sensible enough to ask me to write a review for them. Sorry, my machine keeps making this strange little glitchy sound. It sounds a bit like I'm saying stupid, but it's just a stupid. See, did it again. Stupid. Oh, it's gracious. I don't know how to stop it. Sorry. Bye, you stupid, lovely people. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.